so one of my you know big mantras over the years for me has been you know make informed decisions by using data so so the data that's in front of you should be the thing that you are you are using as a guide to to help inform decision making it doesn't make the decision for you uh, but it certainly is there to help guide and provide as much factual perspective as possible. I'll just I'll give you a quick antidote why why that's become so ingrained in me. Uh, early on in my career, I spent um, spent a few short years in the environmental business, and I was doing a presentation um, to the CEO of the company I worked for, and we were talking we were doing a market analysis, talking about competitive situation, capacity in the market, whatnot. And so during my presentation, I said. Um, well, I think da 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 da. And he said, Rick, stop. Don't tell me what you think. Tell me what you know. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. All right, so I am super excited. We just had Rick Dietz, who is the president of Advent, which is a chain of ENT locations opening up across the U.S. Um, super, super sharp CEO or um, second in command to the the founder. He's going to be talking around how he actually came into the organization, the private equity firm that brought him in as president to report into the founder and CEO, and how he's going to be growing the organization. Uh, talking about how he develops people, his focus on developing people. He's also at the process right now of getting rid of the almost entire management team and bringing in the right leadership team. They're about a 250-person company. So they're really building out that first leadership team. So a lot of stuff about turning over people and transitioning of people and his thoughts around that. Really strong people leader. Talking about the use of data and how they use data to make decisions in certain areas, the changes of working with the PE firm and how that's changed the organization. And then also what it was like being an outside hire and coming in. So some really, really great information and advice you're going to be getting. You're going to love this episode. We'll see you on the inside. So, hey, Rick, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Uh, it's great to be here, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to talking with you today, learning a little bit about you as well. Before we kind of dive in, why don't you just talk about kind of what Advent is as a company? I know you're president of Advent right now. We'll talk about how you got into the role as president and, and why you joined the organization and the, the kind of change that the organization is going through. But just talk to us a little bit about the company itself so we understand the perspective you'll be coming from today. So Advent is a subspecialty ear, nose, and throat practice that has, over the course of, believe it or not, 15 years, and that'll that'll be an interesting comparison because the 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 path we're on right now is very different than sort of the first 12 to 13 years. But subspecialty ENT practice that has honed its service offering to focus on what we call the breathing triangle, which is basically your nose and throat and really focused on helping people both understand and then fix their, uh, their nasal obstruction, their sinus obstruction, so that you can breathe prop- properly through your nose. And there's a whole science behind the, the positive effects of proper nose breathing that uh, we'll touch upon a couple things today, but generally that's what we do. So it is a, uh, it's emerged from a privately owned independent physician practice um, to a couple of years ago doing a transaction with a private equity firm. So we have a financial partner now 
And our mission really is to bring uh, sleeping snoring solutions to as many patients as we can across the upper Midwest as sort of our first uh, geographic footprint of the expansion of the business. So we, was it a one location business originally and now it's evolved into and how many locations do you have now? Yeah, it started back by our founder, Dr. Mother Kandula started the business. Uh, he and his wife operated a very traditional ENT practice. They started with one clinic here in the Milwaukee market um, and for several years basically ran that clinic and then a couple others. And during that period of time, he really evolved what the, what the medical protocol and the focus of the company was going to be. So rather than being a broad-based ENT practice, he saw the opportunity to really focus in on the breathing triangle, as I mentioned, and, and really just bring all of what is typically done both in a fragmented way and typically in surgery centers or operating rooms, bring all that into the in-office environment. So 98% of what we do, um, which, are, which are nasal and sinus procedures, are done in office. So we've greatly uh, reduced the barriers to entry for patients, both on cost and, and ease of um, access and convenience and recovery time. So it's a fascinating model when you look at what we're able to do. And so from basically about 2016, 17 on, Dr. Candula decided to really narrow cast the business and began to open additional clinics in Wisconsin uh, and opened a handful of those over the course of the next three to four years. And right before COVID, um, took the step to cross the state line into the state of Illinois. And during, believe it or not, during COVID and then thereafter uh, opened uh, four clinics down in Illinois. And so we're operating basically nine clinics uh, for over the built in and operated nine clinics over the course of about five or six years, five or six years. This is all before um, the um, the transaction was done with private equity firm. And are, are all of the the current locations are all ones that you, that you did startups? None of these were acquisitions. So the the ones that I talked about up to this point in the uh, in the history uh, timeline were all de novos. And our model very much is a de novo build model. But interestingly, uh, when we look at what we've accomplished in the last year, particularly in 2020, we entered two new states. We entered Minnesota and we entered Indiana. And both of those state entries were through acquisition, through partnerships. So similar minded uh, ENT physicians that were doing in-office uh, procedures, loved our model, wanted to fully commit to what we were doing, partnered with each of them. In Indiana, we're in South Bend now, just down the street from the Notre Dame campus. And uh, in Minnesota, we're up in Blaine and are going to be opening several new clinics there um, this year. Okay, well, this is completely weird because I actually am a client, not of your business, but of this exact set of types of procedures. Two years ago, I had to go in and get two procedures done. They decided to do them both at the same time because my travel schedule was insane. The doctor said they almost never do both procedures at the same time because there's so much healing process. But I had a, a very bad deviated septum, really, really struggled with breathing through my nose. And then they had to do a cut here where they kind of lifted up my tongue and moved it forward or stitched it down or did something. But he's an 18-year ENT here in Arizona. And he said that it was the, the narrowest uh, breathing at the back of the throat that he'd seen in 18 years. And he said that after the surgery, not as trying to get me in. Did you have terrible snoring? Uh, pretty bad at times, yeah. But it was also really struggled with breathing. I, I used to be a runner. I ran marathons. I've run half marathons, 10Ks. I used to ski race. 
And I always was a mouth breather and had struggled with, with breathing through my nose. I'll tell you about, it took about six months to get all the pain in the neck and stuff to completely heal. But it feels like I'm cheating now with breathing. It feels like I have two noses. Like I, I can literally, through my nose, get so much air. It's almost, it's weird. It's it's a completely different sensation. And then I read the the book, is it Breath or Breathe, the book? Breathe, yeah. Breathe. Yeah. Fantastic book. Like, it is a fantastic book. Yeah, and I, I remember listening to it on a hike that I was doing in, um, I can't remember where I was. I think it was in California. And I, I was hiking and I started practicing just doing the nose breathing. And now I've used the strips that go over your mouth. And there's some real science behind this stuff. It's pretty cool stuff. There, there really is. And I think, you know, just when you when you ask you know, what's Advent's mission and, and vision about, it really is to develop, we look at as developing the, the category, that this is such an underappreciated and under focused area that uh, more and more consumers need to understand that you don't have to live this way, right? You don't have to continue to go through those struggles. And so I'll, I'll just sort of finish up the last unique piece of our, our business model is that we are direct to consumer. So not, you know, most subspecialties rely on referrals from primary care and, and other subspecialists, depending on the situation. One of the things Dr. Candula did very early on was to sort of throw away the traditional model go direct to consumer. And so, you know, we have a pretty substantial marketing budget annually to um, to get out and to get the word out and, and get Advent name uh, in front of folks that can benefit from this. And the model's proven to uh, to be really effective. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I've been a part of three different roll-ups in my career. We rolled up the house painting industry. We did it with the collision repair industry. It's called Gerber Auto Collision in the U.S. The first company was called College Pro Painters. And then I did it in garbage with 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And in all of those cases, the, the category had existed, you know, like ENTs and this surgery has been around forever, but there's no brand around it, right? There's no, there's no household. I, I had no idea where to go because there was all these independent physicians. And, but is that the idea then is to, to build a brand? Your experience is exactly the thing that, that, that why Advent exists, because most consumers, patients that have this problem don't know where to turn. Many of the primary care physicians will just be, you know, prescribing nasal sprays and things like that. They might send you to a pulmonologist who might then send you to a sleep lab. And it's it's very, very fragmented. And so, you know, the vision that Dr. Candula had for, for our model was really to bring it all under one roof, do it in, in office, as opposed to focusing on taking you to the surgery, you know, and do it this as minimally invasive as possible. I also really like that there's going to be a brand around it because this is embarrassing. I am very, very happy with my surgery. I think the doctor who did the work was spectacular, great bedside manner, really easy to talk to. I can't remember his name, and it's only two years ago. I literally can't. I've been sitting here for 10 minutes going, what the hell is his name? can't remember <laughs> what his name was, which means I can't even enthusiastically give a referral. But if there was a brand around it, right, like a redirect health or an advent or something, I could quite easily, you know, so yeah, you're on to something big. Were you from the industry or were you from the outside of the industry? So I, I, I would, the way I would describe myself is I've been a, a private physician practice operator for basically 20 years. Um, so I've spent, prior to coming to Advent, I was doing very similar practice management work in the fertility space. Um, so both managing uh, and running individual fertility centers, and then in my last uh, position prior to coming here, serving as interim CEO of a, a, a management service organization of uh, 25 clinics across the US and Canada. So it's, um, it's very similar work when you are a management service organization that is 
providing services to clinicians and practices, the nature of the work is very similar no matter what subspecialty you're in. And um, I, I looked at this opportunity uniquely from my background because A, obviously practice management is in my blood, but prior to really coming back into this space back in 2007, I spent a handful of years in consumer packaged goods and healthcare and OTC products. So I, um, I had a very accelerated, fun and interesting education on you know, what it is to, to really market direct to consumer. And so for me coming into this environment, it was a great match because of, I have both backgrounds and can appreciate in our case, you know, most subspecialties invest about 1% of their, their budget in marketing. You know, we invest 10% of ours. So it's a very different animal. And um, for me, it was just a great fit where I could use, uh, you know, both my business skills and my uh, direct to consumer marketing skills. But, yeah, but you weren't a physician. You've been in the medical and, and running. Okay. I've been, a, I've been sort of an administrator my whole life. And uh, I followed in my dad's footsteps. Um, he ran a hospital literally for 60 years of, uh, of his life came in as, as controller and quickly became president and then CEO. And he ran that community hospital forever. It was a teaching and research hospital as well. So I, I have uh, the advantage of having a, a great tutor that uh, studied the healthcare system each and every day. And it, uh, it sort of just got passed on in the genes. Well, because you, you really don't find a lot of very successful uh, doctors slash entrepreneurs. It's just, it's like two very, very different skill sets, right? Yeah. And I will tell you that those that have had the success um, and gravitate to it typically have been subspecialty uh, physicians that just have that flair. So the fertility field was full of them. Think about it. You know, fertility basically came into sort of a, you know, commercialization in, in the 1980s, once Louise Brown was, was born and the technology was proven to work effectively and safely, the category took off, but it's only been around for, you know, 40 years. The, the current group of physicians that are now exiting out on retirement were all those, those physician entrepreneurs. They all said, we want to go do this IVF thing. And the hospitals were like, we're not investing in that. So they're like, well, you know what? I'm just going to go do it on my own. And I will say, Dr. Candula here at Advent is, is that same visionary, that same entrepreneur. Uh, he also has a great knack for marketing, which um, was, uh, was really important for him to be able to uh, bring the business uh, where he's brought it to at this point. It sounds very similar to the, uh, the cannabis industry, where you have a whole bunch of these businesses that they, these were just a bunch of people that like to smoke pot that opened up businesses. They weren't necessarily good at the horticulture and the growing of actual you know, the, the actual plants and, and the ones who have been super successful are the ones who are really from the science side of it, not just necessarily they like to smoke pot once in a while. All right. Yeah. So and, and at the heart of all of that is, you know, as, as all great entrepreneurs have is that that vision and that that drive that mission to uh, to practice what they see in front of them. That's what I want to ask you about. What what was it about you or about the doctor um that, that you liked or that you resonated with that got you to join his business? Was it his vision? Was it his personality? Um, he's very charismatic. So yes, his, the way that the, the culture that he built here early on and the, the energy and enthusiasm that this organization has and continues, continues to have was certainly um, a, a check in the right box for me. But he's also, as I said, he, was a, he, he proved to be a, a great marketer which is very, very, very unusual. I mean, I, I know physicians that are great scientists and, and have um, 
you know, creative development minds for new technology and, and advancement. Dr. Kandula is just, just a great marketer. He, he, it's in his DNA. He just gets it naturally and, and he's committed to it. So he recognized early that that, that was going to be his major point of differentiation and how he was going to actually be able to grow the business. So the fact that, that that was core, that he believed in it, the model was, was clear to me. Um, those are really the, the two from a, who I was going to be working with and partnering with. That was, those are really the two key, uh, key factors for me that it was like, all right, this certainly can work. What do you think he saw in you? Um, I think he appreciated the fact that I had a, uh, a marketing background and yeah, I had an appreciation for it. Yeah. So I think that that certainly was, was a good fit. Um, but I also think that he got to a point where he recognized that in order for this business to really scale and go forward, there was a, a new generation of leaders in the organization that needed to come together and help the, the organization mature to a next stage. And, and that's really, quite honestly, for the last year and a half, that's what we've been focused on is is building the foundation department by department, but then across the organization, developing policies and procedures, best practices, and really ingraining a discipline within our management team of how we want to do business. So even though, you know, relatively speaking, we're still a, a fairly small company, we, we like to act like we're a big, sophisticated company. And being able to bring those techniques, um, you know, data analytics is a huge part of, of, of what we practice every day. Uh, but bringing those things to the forefront and using them as tools to run the business, I think he intuitively knew that it was time to, to um, do something different. It's also part of the reason why he, you know, chose to partner with a financial partner as well, because that help and assistance, they recruit and bring in people like me that have the, the, the pertinent experience to be able to drive these things. It was just, it was just the right time for him to do that. So had he partnered with the PE firm prior to bringing you on then? Was that part of, yes. okay. Yeah. So in my case, it was a traditional working with um, the PE firm, working with the founder to, to begin to bring in um, new team members. Interesting. Hey, it's Cameron. Did you hear? That's right. I wrote another book. But this book isn't just another book for me. It's actually for you, the visionary CEO that is looking to grow and scale their business. This book is called The Second in Command, Unleash the Power of Your COO. As a founder and CEO, you're used to making all the decisions, but the business you have isn't the one you envision. Heck, we've all been there. And the thing is, you know what you need. You need a COO, someone who can help you build the company you don't know how to build on your own. The Second in Command is your go-to guidebook when you're ready to scale up. I go through all the details in every aspect of the process, from knowing when you need to hire a COO, through identifying and hiring the right candidate, and successfully onboarding and working with them, and so much more. Go to CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to get your copy today. The Second in Command reveals the benefits COOs bring to companies and explores the many ways a COO mastermind or a COO forum can help grow the COO skills. You'll meet the types of COOs and understand the role each type plays, discover how to bring on a COO into your company with the least disruption, and avoid common problems before they arrive. Once again, it's CameronHerald.com forward slash new book to grab your copy today. There's no need to go it alone. We're in this together. Now back to the show. It's 
it's interesting to hear you talk about that, that you're a smaller company and you want to try to be like act like or work more like a bigger company. I, I had a mentor years ago who was being groomed as the second in command at Starbucks and he mentored me for almost two years. And one of the mantras at Starbucks, it was actually a huge saying on one of their walls at their head office that I saw one day. And it said, grow big, act small. And it was, the, but they, you know, they were already like, I don't know, 14,000 locations. So they were trying to stay entrepreneurial, but I love what you're talking about too, which is we know that these tools are out there. They've almost become commoditized or democratized that we can actually leverage a lot of these tools now at a fraction of what they used to cost us. So it's almost irresponsible not to use them, right? Exactly. And it's, and there's a business discipline. So one of my, you know, big mantras over the years for me has been, you know, make informed decisions by using data. So, so the data that's in front of you should be the thing that you are, you are using as a guide to, to help inform decision-making. It doesn't make the decision for you, uh, but it certainly is there to help guide and provide as much factual perspective as possible. I'll just I'll give you a quick antidote why, why that's become so ingrained in me. Uh, early on in my career, I spent, um, spent a few short years in the environmental business, and I was doing a presentation um, to the CEO of the company I worked for, and we were, talk- we were doing a market analysis talking about competitive situation, capacity in the market, whatnot. And so during my presentation, I said, um, well, I think da 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 And he said, Rick, stop. Don't tell me what you think. Tell me what you know. And then I did it again in the presentation, and he stopped me. <laughs> Rick, don't tell me what you think. Tell me what you know. And it obviously stuck. Um, and it really has been a guiding force to for me over time in terms of We've got all this data, and obviously in today's world, we have literally too much data, but how you use it for decision-making and, and back to the point of acting like a sophisticated company, that's one of those places where you can really make better decisions um, if, you, if you commit to it. Well, and it's interesting. One of the most successful companies of the last you know, 25 years is Google, and Google famously says, I don't care what you think, what does the data say? And it's because they have so many smart people that have opinions that if they let these smart people raise their opinions, it's dangerous. So they, they, they're like, you know, thank, thanks for your idea. Thanks for your opinion. But what's the data say? Um, so I, love, I actually had a question of how to use your data, but that makes a lot of sense. What yeah. Do you, so in, yeah, in our business, you know, we, we're really using it around trying to optimize. We're, we're knee deep right now, for instance, in a, um, in a uh, labor optimization exercise. So, you know, we've developed new modeling around capacity, demand and capacity and, and figuring out how we best flex uh, our clinical resources, particularly because that's where, you know, that's where the transactions happen for us. Um, but how do we optimize that and use staff smartly and, and wisely and, and get the most out of the, the dollars we have? And, and likewise, if, if we have periods where demand is light, how do we flex and, and not just be carrying a lot of fixed costs? It's so smart that you measure that because as a company scales, especially when they have an injection of capital, they often get a little bit lazy on people. And I, and I see that it's often the early stage managers in their career, you know, their first time managing people where they don't necessarily have the wisdom of seeing this yet or the, or the experience, but their answer to every problem is hire more people instead of optimization or saying no or automation or, or how do you get more labor efficiency? So it's smart. How many employees do you have system-wide currently? So we're 250, and and the the dynamic you just described is exactly the the cycle we've just gone through. <laughs> that's exact. That's exact. I talk about it in the so I I identify companies at the ones and the threes, and from one person to three, from three to ten, from ten to thirty, from thirty to hundred, from hundred to three hundred, and when you're in the hundred to three hundred, that's what happens. Mid level managers are messing stuff up. 
you're building your first leadership team from a first management team to a leadership team. And then you're also busting through silos and politics and stuff that's starting to creep in as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think has changed with the culture from the the first injection of capital and how much have they grown in that? What is it, a three-year period, two and a half year period? Yeah. So from a top line perspective, uh, we have we basically doubled the business in the most in the most recent three year period. And um, the bottom line has followed. Um, so we've seen tremendous growth in top and bottom line. Um, the thing that's probably changed the most is that we have uh, we've had we've had a lot of change in the management team. So we've been very um, critical, if you will, of the skill sets that we need on the team and where folks, where the business has outgrown the skill set, we've made the hard decision to make changes. So um, I basically have now pretty much at the end of turning over the entire um, senior leadership team. Uh, so that's been an important piece. We, we are now doing the same thing at the next level down. Uh, so one of the exercises we went through in our annual planning was a, uh, a nine box evaluation of our director levels and, and had very open and honest and, and, and 360 you know, input around each individual, where their skill sets were, where their strengths were, and whether we honestly, whether we thought they were going to be able to scale with the business or not. And that exercise will inform us for you know, what we're going to do this year in terms of development, because if we can develop people, we certainly want to do that first. And if they if they prove they can turn with us, great. If if it's just too much, then you know we'll have to make further hard decisions. But that's been a that's been a real focal point for us because without the right mindset, and I'll I'll come back to the other big theme, both on the senior leadership team as well as how it trickles down to the next layer of management, is we need alignment. We don't have alignment on what we're trying to do, the philosophies we're following, why we make the decisions we make. Then, as you know, people can go off and 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 really cause cause disruption and and really slow things down, you know, in a, in a way that's not going to be productive for the organization. So interesting. I, I dropped a link into the chat that you can look at after we get off our call, but it's a course that I launched two years ago that you guys might devour at that management level, the mid level management. It's called Invest in Your Leaders. It's all the soft core skills that managers need to be better at. I, but I wanted to ask you about the turning over the lead, turning over the leadership team. There's a real there's an art and a science to doing that when you have to start firing people that have been there, people that have grown with the organization. And, and it's almost the looking for the ripple effects of, of, you know, that these great people bring, you know, that you bring them in, they're going to do great, but there's all these unintended ripple effects that happen, good and bad. You know, people are frustrated. They have to report to this new person or they they're disappointed. They don't get to report to the old one or they're pissed off. They didn't get the role. Can you talk to us or speak to some of that? How do you, how do you kind of think about those advanced chess moves, three, four moves in advance and, and get the team ready for all of that? Or how do you react to it better? Yeah. So for me, it, it really starts with the, um, the philosophy and the mindset of, of our functional leadership and, and what I'm looking for. So, you know, in my role, I'm certainly, I'm certainly looking for my key senior managers to be business leaders first and functional leaders second. Um, and that's been a huge mind shift. So as I you know, think about some of the changes that have been made, it really was that an individual may have been too narrowly focused in the function and, and by default in a lot of ways was siloing, siloing. And in other cases, the, the interests and the pursuits were more esoteric and chasing the kinds of things that weren't immediately value added or needed to, to, to focus on to actually drive, for instance, the analytics around how we're 
managing our human capital. So those are places where, for me, it's been, okay, I need, I need the right kind of mindset, the right kind of leader. Um, and then once those changes, decisions are made and we, we go into the hiring process, I've actually invited, knowing in the cases where the departure was known, invited uh, members of the team to um, interview the people, interview, yeah, the interview their future boss. Yeah. And, and have some, have some input into the process. Um, I do that for a couple of reasons. One is kind of the more obvious reason, which is, you know, it's not, it's good for team members to be able to, to participate and feel like they, they had a say and some influence in the decision-making. But the other part of it is when I sit down with the individuals and invite them to the process, it gives me a chance to explain where we're going. Um, and to set the table for, from my lens, what I'm looking for in this in this next leader for that particular group. And so serves a couple of great purposes. And I have found that over the years to be to be helpful. You know, across the board, I also, and I'm sure you've seen this uh, time and time again, that it always helps to stop and explain the whys and connect the dots for people and not just tell them the what, but explain the why. And when you can explain the why, then a lot of times you get better buy-in and quite often you get better execution because people just have a, a better understanding of the bigger picture. How many, how many direct reports do you have currently and what's your typical day-to-day or week-to-week look like right now? So I have six direct reports right now. It was a little less when I got here. Uh, we, we eliminated one of the director levels and the two people reporting to that person now to report to me directly. So I don't, I don't feel like I'm, I'm top heavy on re- direct reports, but that's sort of how it evolved. My day-to-day is really uh, probably 60% of my time is spent on one-on-ones with my department leaders. So we have standard one-on-one meetings. Um, this organization has followed EOS for many years. So we use uh, traction tools or uh, Bloom Growth now as it is the, the software we use to run our meetings. It's been certainly helpful for organization and structure. So that's about 60% of my time. The other 40% of my time uh, is really spent on driving uh, business development and expansion activities. So we still, you know, 85%, 90% of our business is commercial payer. Um, we've had a, uh, we spent a lot of time in 2022 developing our value proposition, getting it very tight and pointed and uh, are now out in the marketplace talking with the major insurers as well as self-insured companies about what we do uh, and the benefits that we can bring. So. Certainly time on, on business development, um, working with our vendors as well in terms of relationships and, and uh, contracting. So pretty much a, probably a 60 manage my people, 40 manage the business kind of split day to day, week in and week out. Got it. Um, interesting, you mentioned traction in EOS. I, I know Gina Wickman really well. And, and typically EOS tends to break down or the traction tends to break down when you get to like the 100 plus employee mark. And, and are you moving over to scaling up Vern Harnish's content at all? Are you looking at Shannon Shusko's three hag way? Are you, are you iterating and, and kind of making traction into something that is more corporate or bigger? Yeah, we are. Or is it still, or is it still working? It's not. Um, and, and I would say that interestingly, for those of us that came to the business from bigger organizations um, that hadn't actually had any exposure to EOS, we're all sort of scratching our heads going, this is, you know, quickly we realize we've outgrown this. This is, you know, where the organization is. This it's a great tool for the the company. It's amazing from ten to hundred people, though. Yeah, exactly. So yes, we are we are in the process of uh, doing just that, evaluating, you know, what what structure and system we need to move going forward. 
Um, Are you familiar with Vern Harnish and his book, Scaling Up? Yes. Take a, yes. take a look at scaling up because scaling up is horrible from 10 employees to a hundred and it's, and it's amazing from the hundred to the thousand. Great. I will, uh, I will certainly do that. It, it just tends to be a little bit more robust, a little bit more, you, you need strong leaders who understand the methodologies, the cross-functional teams. And as even as you mentioned that you're getting your leaders to be business leaders, first functional leaders, second, the analogy I use with that is, um, uh, for, I can never remember any football teams in the U.S. Dallas Cowboys. I'm Canadian, so I was hockey. But the, the, my analogy is always that if you've got a, let's say, the Dallas Cowboys and you've got the wide receiver from the Dallas Cowboys, what's the most important team for him? Is it the offensive team, the special teams, the the defensive team? What's the most important team for the, the wide receiver? So I'll say the, uh, well, I'll go offensive. But you're going to tell me. Where, where do you think I'm going to tell you it is? You're going to probably tell me it's uh, defensive. Now, what's the business team that he should really focus on? It's the Dallas Cowboys, right? The most important team for every business leader is the company itself, not their functional team. Because most people say, oh, it's the offensive team. But really, every single player is obsessed with the Dallas Cowboys. They're like high-fiving the defense when they come off. They're telling them what they just saw. They're helping each other. Like They're not just so focused on their own role. It's the whole team. And I think that's where we need leaders. And that's where managers become leaders is they argue and debate stuff for the good of the core values. They argue and debate for the good of the vision. You know, like that's kind of what you intuitively already get. You know, there's there's an interesting, there's sort of an interesting uh, sort of up and down dynamic, maybe a 30,000 and a 3,000 foot dynamic that that I see going on. And particularly in, in this, where this business is right now with with our team members. And that is the ability to, embrace and understand at a very core level what's going on in your function and and being a subject matter expert on the on the various aspects you don't have to do the work but yet you need to understand the work and then being able to come up and to your point explain it within the context of the broader organization and the good of the organization and how it how it then fits and collaborates across functions uh, in a way that's cohesive and and um, and, and productive as opposed to, you know, being either destructive, which it can be in certain cases or not. So there's an interesting dynamic that goes on there and different people have different ability to, to go in between those two levels. Uh, and I feel like we're there right now. And just to kind of put a finer point on it, the, um, the thing I, I see most people struggling with is the definition of accountability, sort of old day accountability, new day accountability. You know, and as we grow and, and there's more pressure on performance, the importance of actually achieving things on deadlines and dates and creating milestone plans quarterly around rocks as it is in EOS becomes more and more and more critical to the to the pulsing of the organization. And uh, to that point, we we literally just this quarter have started a weekly check in on on milestones. So we don't. We've pulled it out of EOS. We still have it in EOS, but we pulled out the review. I bring the entire team together. So we have probably have too many, but we have about 20, 20 projects this month. So we just today had our first 20 and 20 meeting, and that's 20, 20 rocks are reviewed in 20 minutes. On track, nice. off wow. track. Wow. I and love it. And go right around the table. And if it's if you're off track and you need help, you stay after and we sit and we we work on it. But and we're doing this weekly so that, you know, there's there's no escaping. There are Gantt charts that have been established with due dates on all this. And it's just another back to this point of discipline. It's another level of of um, uh, focus and commitment that 
at the end of the day, and I keep telling everybody, I know this is a real a royal PIA and it seems like micromanagement, but I promise you that if we get disciplined in this, that we will actually hit our milestones on the, you know, on the dates we say we're going to hit them. As Jim Collins used to say, disciplined people, disciplined thought, disciplined action, right? Absolutely. Um, I used to coach a company over in Switzerland and I, and I talked to them one day and I was like, it's incredible how you guys consistently deliver everything on time. And the CEO said, well, he started laughing. He goes, we're Swiss. It's like, <laughs> like it, everything has to oh, be on time. Everything. That's like, it's, yeah, it's just so weird to them to not even think that way. Right. I just laughed. All right. I've got two final questions. What was your first 90 days like at, um, at Advent? What do you, do you remember back that, you know, year and a half back, what was your first 90 days coming in? How did you operate? Yeah. You know, it's, it's like my first 90 days everywhere that's new and probably for most people. And that is, um, just trying to figure out how the organization, you know, runs, trying to figure out what makes it tick, figure out what the culture is about, how they've gotten to where they've gotten. And, you know, so for instance, in my case here with EOS, that was a very foreign system to me. I hadn't, I actually hadn't even heard of it until I got here. And so I needed to be respectful of the system that was in place and listen and learn and observe as to what it was doing for the organization. And then as you pointed out, what it was not doing for the organization and just begin to uh, digest and, and start to, to architect in my mind, kind of what the future of how we're going to operate was going to look like, you know, and I've, I've had a couple mentors that taught me early on and I've carried this with me too. And that is, you know, in your first, whatever, 30 days, 60 days, just go and observe and just go sit with the people that do the work and watch what they do and ask questions about what's going on. And, and, and you will learn so much about an organization just by listening and asking you know, as opposed to the old, don't come charging in and trying to make changes uh, day one to, to impress people or or feel like you're, you're somehow adding value from the moment you step in the door. Totally. Yeah, it's so dangerous. If you do, you just don't have enough. It's kind of like test the hypotheses. All right, I want you to go back to the 22-year-old and, um, you know, you're just kind of getting ready to, to graduate university and Rick Dietz needs some advice. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back when you were 21 or 22? So there's, uh, there's one really practical piece. And that is um, if you can, if you're willing and able to go into a sales job just for a short period of time and learn traditional selling, those skills will stay with you forever. And I know that, you know, unfortunately, sales gets a bad rap a lot, um, you know, as a profession. But the skills that we all learn from, from getting some traditional selling um, training, you use them every day. And uh, you're always selling to somebody every moment of the day. So if you're willing to kind of put a little bit of time into that and do it, I think it's a, it's a great, simple sort of tactical uh, professional development exercise. You know, I think the second piece is probably what I violated all the time and is to learn some patience. You know, I, I would I and those that are hardwired to like me and I met a few of me along the way, you know, we wanted to change the world overnight and we were at our boss's doors banging on the door and, you know, frustration. Why is this place this way? And, you know, and not just having enough experience with organizational you know, dynamics and, and how places run. And just from that, learning to, to be able to step back again, observe, try to understand every organization's different. Decision-making is different. You know, how the process works is different. How bosses like to interact with you, uh, what they, how they're asking you to, to, to carry yourself in the organization is different. So, so having some patience when you go into these early jobs and being able to observe 
and, and from a cultural and behavioral perspective first, and then you can kind of get into your subject matter uh, elements next. Um, I, you know, I certainly wish along the way I'd been, uh, had a little bit of that whispering in my ear because I know there were plenty of moments where I was like, shut up and sit down. <laughs> I love that. Rick Dietz, the president of Advent. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate your time. Great to be here, Cameron. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.